President Trump's leadership, and he intends to carry this forward, and this rule will be an important part of that effort. Would you also agree that Emma Lazarus's words etched on the Statue of Liberty, give me your tired, your poor, are also part of the American ethos? Uh, They certainly are. Give me your tired and your poor who can stand on their own two feet and who will not become a public charge. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Ken Cuccinelli, the head of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services last week, appearing on NPR, where he also edited the poem on the base of the Statue of Liberty. Cuccinelli was discussing the Trump administration's public charge rule, which is expected to significantly change how legal immigrants can get residency in the United States. The Urban Institute reported that one in seven adults in immigrant families said that they or a family member did not participate in a government program like Medicaid last year out of fear they might lose a chance at a green card. You'll hear from two people today talking about the implications of this new rule. First, Ted Hessen, my Politico colleague who's broken a lot of news on the immigration beat, will walk through the new rule and the political leaders shaping immigration policy. Then Dr. Omolara Uwamadimo, a physician at Northwell Health who not only has an immigration story herself, but works with patients and community partners who are affected by this administration's rules, will come on to share her perspective. It's not just about government benefits, but people are living in fear. I should note that we tried to get an immigrant patient for today's podcast, but there was too much fear about speaking up around this rule. We're going to be talking about a lot of policy, so be sure to check the show notes for links and explanations to the terms that we use. And be sure to leave a comment or a rating on the podcast to search for Politico Pulse Check on your favorite player. And now, here's my Politico colleague, Ted Hessen. Ted Hessen, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thank you for having me. Thank you for gracing us. It's been a busy day. Yeah, it's uh, another uh, typical August summer under the Trump administration when it comes to covering immigration, which means we're, we're running around uh, trying to keep up with the news. The big news from last week, the Trump administration updating a 140-year-old rule on public charge, which was originally intended back in the 1800s to keep out undesirables from the United States. I'm quoting from the original law here, uh, quote, any convict, lunatic, idiot, or any person unable to take care of himself or herself without becoming a public charge. Ted, how long have you covered immigration? I've been covering it um, in some way, roughly a decade or so, and, and more closely since I've been at Politico, which is the last three years. So in that decade plus and in your three years at Politico, until recently, how often was public charge the focus of regulatory efforts? I mean, this didn't really come on people's radar until the Trump administration. I think that early on, uh, there was talk that they were planning to change this regulation, which, I mean, as you mentioned, it dates back to the late 1800s. But essentially, it was on the books, but there wasn't much being done with it. Um, There was some guidance issued in 1999 under the Clinton administration that further defined what it meant to be a public charge, because actually the statute in question doesn't even define who would actually be this kind of person who uh, would be deemed a burden on taxpayers. Um, So... Really, for the first time when Trump became president, this became seriously um, under consideration as something that could be fleshed out and used to uh, change the the legal immigration system. Who would be a public charge moving forward that historically would would not have had to worry about this rule? Well, this is a sweeping regulation. I mean, with the comments and whatnot, it was something like 800-some pages. And it outlines a pretty complicated criteria that explains how a person could trigger this public charge determination. So we're talking, first of all, about legal immigrants, 
coming to the U.S. Um, and particularly, we're looking at the effects on green cards and what it means for people that are trying to obtain green cards and legal permanent residency in the U.S. Um, and what the rule says is it, that if you have used or you're using or deemed likely to use a certain set of public benefits, that you could essentially be denied a green card. Um, and it's part of a broader test. Um, it's not just looking at public benefit use, but it actually looks at your age, your health, your income, whether you have children or not, um, all these different factors, skills, and this immigration officer will make a determination whether you should receive that visa or be admitted to the U.S. And one of those benefits would be Medicaid under the new rule from the Trump administration. That's right. There are, so there are these certain benefits they're looking at, um, including uh, welfare, Medicaid, food stamps, and housing assistance. Um, so th those are the main things that they'd be looking at. And the idea is that if this person has used these uh, to some degree or is deemed likely to use them because they're not making enough money, uh, they have children, and they're just in a kind of likely demographic of a person who might use it. So I, I want to drill down on this point just because I, I think it's tricky and want to make sure I understand. If, say, my, my uncle has come to the United States from Greece and he has used Medicaid in the past but doesn't need to use Medicaid anymore, does that count on his green card status? Most likely that'd be what they call a heavily weighted negative factor as he applies for that green card or he just to become a, a permanent resident here. Um, and what they would say and what the Trump administration would say is in this regulation, there are a whole bunch of positive factors and negative factors. So you might balance that out by saying, well, I have used Medicaid, but I have an employer who's about to pay me $150,000 a year. So I'm not really a risk to use it again. Or, you know, I have um, a sponsor who's sponsoring me at, at, you know, with a great amount of money in their bank account and assets at their disposal um, that will show that I won't need it. Um, you know, so those are just a few examples of ways to overcome it. And is this truly a decision that an immigration case officer might be making looking at someone's record and stamping approval for the green card or rejecting it? Or does it go higher up? Do politicals get to make the call on how people are getting their green cards? I mean, the way it plays out in the regulation, it appears it will be at the discretion of these case officers. Um, it's already happening at the State Department. So when people apply for immigrant visas from abroad, they go to a consulate or an embassy abroad, and a State Department official there will consider their application and will decide should this person or is this person likely to become a public charge? And this is even in January 2018, the Trump administration had started to initiate this in consulates even before they had put this new regulation out. So it's already in play in those places. Yeah, just to underline the point, we already have a, a almost test area, a pilot project area where we see the impact of this rule. And it has been significant, which is one reason why so many advocacy groups are so worried now that the rule is going to be effectively expanded to this bigger population. Yeah, that's right. Um, right before this public charge um, DHS rule came out, we actually got our hands on some State Department visa data that showed by country who had been denied on public charge in recent years. And the first thing that it showed was that from fiscal year 2016, which was the last full year under former President Barack Obama, to, you know, compared with the current fiscal year, we just saw public charge denial skyrocket. I mean, it went from being a, a category where only about a thousand people had been denied an immigrant visa because of this to uh, 13,000 people through the first 10 months of fiscal year 2019. So, I mean, it's a pretty big increase in the overall, you know, million or so people who come become uh, legal immigrants in the U.S. each year. 
Um, it, it's not a huge number, but you can show that as a grounds of denying people, it's grown quite a bit. And there's a lot of fear in, in the communities that I talk to and work with of the chilling effect, and we'll have a doctor on the program to speak about that a little bit later. You and others have reported on how Stephen Miller, the White House advisor who has emerged as the immigration czar, drove this rule change. Listeners can check the show notes to see some of that coverage. How did Stephen Miller even settle on this idea? Did someone mention this century-plus-old rule to him? Did he come into the White House knowing that this is what he was going to do? Yeah, um, Stephen, Stephen Miller, first of all, for those who aren't familiar, is really regarded as the architect of President Trump's immigration agenda. And he's the person driving this and driving uh, most of the major immigration initiatives that they're working on. Um, but this public charge regulation in particular was really important for him. And people um, who worked with him, uh, Trump administration officials, described it, the way he thought of it as it being transformative to the legal immigration system, with the idea being that you could essentially say that for poorer immigrants, for people with health problems, it, you could more likely reject them for an immigrant visa. And for people who can prove that they have more money and a better chance to earn, you could approve them. Um, so I think that it was important for him in the sense that, and is important for him, that he could have longer term effects on the legal immigration system. One of your scoops was uncovering Stephen Miller's private emails to other immigration officials as he was pushing for the public charge rule. In this business, we are not allowed to have favorites, can't have favorite politicians. But I am curious, in these FOIA emails you uncovered from Stephen Miller, did you have a favorite? Was there one that really jumped out to you? Well, this was your um, typical FOIA request, which means out of hundreds and hundreds of pages, you know, plenty of it was redacted with, uh, you know, big blank spaces on it. But some emails got through, including emails that were sent by Stephen Miller. And I should say FOIA, which, which you and I know, but not every listener might, that's the Freedom of Information Act request where public officials, public agencies have to release records, though, to your point, they're not always easy to read because they're big black lines that are taking up most of the page. That, that's right. And when you get them, you know, uh, officials at um, DHS, Homeland Security Department, would have already gone through and taken out things that they deemed too sensitive or um, too relevant to other legal discussions to release to the public. So quite frequently, these things are filled with, with blanked out and blacked out um, material. But in this case, these emails weren't, uh, which really pleased us. And we took a look and saw that uh, they showed us and gave us kind of a rare window into how he was pressing other officials to finalize this regulation. And in particular, there were a series sent to former um, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Francis Cisna, who was another immigration hardliner and, and working on this regulation. But not hardline enough for Stephen Miller. Uh, apparently not, because he, he came at him saying, um, well, first of all, wanted to know the timeline for getting this done back in, in June 2018, and then came back at him and, and said that um, it needed to be done, you know, quicker and it wasn't being done fast enough. It was unacceptable. And also that it was an embarrassment um, that they hadn't published any kind of regulation like this. And it was kind of rare insight into the back and forth that we often hear about here in Washington as reporters uh, between top officials. Um, but they were actually putting in an email, which is a bit surprising. I, I have Miller's email in front of me uh, that, that you uncovered. Uh, and I can't do his voice, so forgive me, listeners. But uh, quote Stephen Miller, Francis, the timeline on public charge is unacceptable. Public charge reg has been in the works for a year and a half. This is time we don't have. I don't care what you need to do to finish it on time. You run an agency of 20,000 people. It's an embarrassment that we've been here for 18 months and USCIS hasn't published a single major reg. Adding Mick and Chad to this email, Mick being Mick Mulvaney. Listeners can find those emails and Ted's story in the show notes. You mentioned that Stephen Miller pushed out 
Francis Cisna, this immigration official. There has been a makeover at the Homeland Security Department, which you cover. Where do things stand now, Ted? Are there regulations that are still in development? Or is, is this, and some of the other regulations that we've seen, is this kind of it? And enough has been changed that now they're just focused on protecting them in court. Well, um, as you mentioned, there has been sort of a rolling um, purge, if you will, at the Homeland Security Department of top officials. I mean, we saw Francis Cisna um, pushed out a few months ago, and also the former secretary, Kirsten Nielsen. Um, and they currently have an acting secretary in um, Kevin McAleenan at the moment. So there's quite a bit of instability there. Um, that said, they're still working on initiatives. These, this initiative, the public charge measure, was one of the biggest and most important and was absorbing quite a bit of time of um, DHS staffers and lawyers who were working on it. A second one was actually um, released this week, the uh, Flores uh, detention rule, which actually permits the Trump administration or could permit them to expand uh, detention of migrant families, so keep children for longer. Um, right now, if you have kids um, in detention with their parents, that's limited to a 20-day period. And if this rule goes into effect, um, and it would still need some court approval before that happens, then it would essentially lift that 20-day limit and say you could keep kids with their parents for a long time. So those were two major things that in the last several weeks, they cleared the decks on. Um, and there are smaller things in the pipeline, but um, no nothing quite of this stature at the moment. The Flores regulation requires coordination with DHS and HHS. You and I have worked together because of that crossover. We worked on some of the border separation stories last summer. Is there a sense that the regulations moving forward would require HHS to help Homeland Security and really play ball? Or is this really driven by the Homeland Security Department and HHS is just fitting around what DHS is doing? It appears to be driven by the Homeland Security Department um, because it has been a top enforcement priority. I mean, they've been saying uh, since Trump took office that one of the things they really needed to do with the Trump administration was to get out from under a judge's decision that was limiting how long they could hold kids with their parents to 20 days. And they were saying that because of that, essentially, families were showing up at the border and they had two choices. Either they could separate them. Uh, which led to, which they tried at one point last summer uh, from, from April to June or last spring, um, and led to thousands of families separated and a huge um, kind of PR crisis for the president at the least. And, you know, what advocates would say, would say was a humanitarian crisis. And what pediatricians would add put lots of kids at risk from mental health conditions to the conditions of some of these shelters where they were sent, where there are allegations of abuse and, and, um, uh, potential risk of disease. Yeah. So what the Trump administration has said is that that's all because the family separation uh, was because of this 20 day limit that says they can't really detain families. So they were faced with this situation. Either we separate them or we basically let them go into the U.S. after a short stay in a detention center. Um, and now what they're trying to say is under this new regulation, if they can lift that 20 day limit and hold families for an indefinite amount of time, that they'll be able to more quickly resolve their cases, either let them stay if they have a valid cause to stay or deport them if they don't. That, that's the argument. Getting back to you and your role as an immigration reporter who's covered this for well over a decade, how do immigration advocates generally feel about the state of affairs? Is this as low as many of them have been given the regulations coming from the Trump administration, the separations at the border, the general attitude, not just about illegal immigration, but also now cracking down on legal immigration too? Or is there a sense that this is still survivable if a Democratic president comes in in a year and a half and much of this could be rolled back? 
I can remember um, huddling with a few advocates here in D.C. Uh, just days before the 2016 election, and they were actually pitching us on all the things they were hoping to do um, when, as they expected, Hillary Clinton won the election. I had and similar conversations on the healthcare side. Yeah. I, I remember bringing up at the end, and I said, well, what's your plan if Trump wins? And, well, one person just said, that's not going to happen. Don't need to worry about it. And, and the other one took the question more seriously and said, um, we're just going to have to retract into a very defensive posture and try and hold as much ground as we can until this is over. I think they were... The advocate who predicted that Trump wouldn't be elected, is that person still on his or her job? They are still on their job. And, I mean, they're getting closer to the next election, so we can circle back and ask them what their prediction is this time. But uh, that's not a, not a good record so far. They are getting closer to that election date and, and perhaps gearing up for the possibility that there could be a new administration in and what might happen then. Um, could they quickly reverse some of these things that would happen? I mean, not all of them will be so easily reversible. Um, and that's just a, a fact. It will take, if there is a different administration that wants to do that, um, they'll have to proceed uh, through regulation and through different steps. Uh, that will hold up in court and that will um, hold water legally. And with the election approaching, there really is so much writing on who wins and what that means for immigration policy. And we will look to your excellent coverage as always, Ted. Thank you for joining Politico Pulse Check. Glad to be here. And now that we've talked about the policies and politics behind this administration's actions on immigration, we're going to take the conversation outside of Washington, D.C. and hear from Dr. Omolara Uemedimo, pediatrician, on Long Island in New York. Dr. Omalara Uemadimo, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks so much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be able to talk with you and your audience. You are a pediatrician. We're reaching you on Long Island. You're focused on health equity. How did you get into this work? I would say that it's actually been a part of how I grew up. I'm actually the daughter of Nigerian immigrants who emigrated here about 40 years ago. And one of the most important things that they instilled in me was not only reflecting on how wonderful this country was to them in terms of being able to really move into different places from, a, from I would say, a country where there was some difficulty with them in terms of um, poverty, unemployment, and the ability to just move into different places depending on how not only hard you work, but also how much collaboration you were able to provide with others and how to serve others actually helps you to move forward. So I think one of the most important things that they did during my life in, in terms of focusing on health equity was making sure that I always was able to go back to Nigeria see what the difference was, and then really focus on underserved populations because of the concern that where you lived kind of determined what your health outcomes were going to be. And I wanted to remove that kind of division. You wrote an op-ed in Newsweek in recent days. Listeners can look at the show notes to find a link to that op-ed. But you talked about how your own parents depended on government assistance in the United States. Yeah. So if you meet my mom, she's a 67-year-old woman. Um, she's a nurse midwife. And I like to say I don't think she's ever had less than three jobs ever in her life. And one of the things that I think was when I talked with her about this public charge rule, she had for the first time told me, and that was last year in February, that she actually used food stamps. And I had no clue because I've just seen her as someone who's always looked to me to be, you know, never needing any kind of assistance. But 
one thing that happened was that when she was pregnant with me, she actually, I was the sixth pregnancy for her after five miscarriages. And so she was needing to be on bed rest. And during that time, she couldn't work, which was almost blasphemy for her. (laughs) And in that light, uh, my father, who was really starting out in his electrical engineer job, did not have enough to provide for everyone. And so in order to make ends meet, they decided to go on food stamps. Um, After I was born, uh, once my mom returned to work, she stopped using food stamps and now is, uh, you know, a business owner and has employed so many people, um, still actually works with immigrant populations today, and I believe has given back so much more, um, 10, 20 fold of what she actually received um, during that small time period. The story that you tell, Doctor, is a story that's common to many immigrant families, where, where at some point, government assistance was helpful in getting a foothold. You work with patients, with community partners in New York, did they understand the significance of the public charge rule when it first was being floated last year in 2018? I believe there definitely was an understanding of how significant this was. I believe where the difficulty lied in is who was actually going to be the targets of this policy. Uh, If many of your audience members remember, there were multiple leaks about this policy and multiple changes and revisions. Now, I can't say whether that was done on purpose (laughs) or not. That's more of a political question answer, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But what I will say is that it allowed for there to be a roar in confusion, in mistrust, and in concern among immigrant populations at large who were here, who are the majority, who are documented immigrants. And for that reason, a number of immigrants who are not actually targeted um, or will not be the ones that will be affected by this policy on paper are actually concerned about the ramifications of this policy just due to that um, miscommunication and, and all of that confusion. So I think many, many will know about what we call the chilling effect and the idea that it causes many immigrants to actually decide not to pursue using government benefits, even though they will have no repercussions if they use it. Well, let's let's take this very specific. Do any of your patients have, have enough fear that they've made decisions to either drop out of Medicaid or, or avoid other benefits? Yes. So thanks for that question. I think one of the cases that sticks out most actually was um, a parent who was probably in his mid 50s and was discovering, I believe, and I'm not his physician, but I'm the physician of the child, but was discovering that he was having difficulty seeing in one eye. Um, His child had health insurance, okay, but he did not. And he's been working as a landscaper. One of the things with this 50-year-old man was that he was at the point where he was eligible for Medicaid, but was making the decision at this point not to pursue Medicaid just because he had a a brother who he was hoping to come over and help the family to bring in more income. Um, The decision for him was, do I let my vision continue to go in hopes that 
I can ultimately bring a family member in or do I do I address this vision issue and potentially not be able to to have my family together and keep family separated? So I think these are some of the questions that are, you know, horrible questions that people have to deal with in, in terms of deciding whether or not to keep their families together or whether or not to address some of the most basic urgent needs that people need, such as health, housing, and food. A lot of the attention on immigration has focused on the southern border. You're on Long Island, outside of New York City. How big is the immigrant population on Long Island? Yes. um, Long Island is a very interesting community. And what I would say is that I serve patients across Queens and Long Island. I think people know Queens as we call it the most diverse county in the U.S. It actually is. Um, Long Island is as well and getting more diverse as we speak. One of the interesting things about Long Island is that most people will t- think of it as a suburbia with a a lot, I would say a high middle income to upper middle income um, group. However, what we've seen is that with that emergence of wealth in, in, those, in those areas, there's also a need for both skilled and unskilled workers. And so we found that those those people tend to be those of immigrant backgrounds. Um, And so you'll find a lot of mixed communities, even in communities with a higher income level, where you have um, people who are living in poverty. And Long Island, I, I like to say, unfortunately, is a tale of two cities, where you have people who are living in deep poverty, and then people who are living at the highest amounts of wealth that you can imagine, and living in the same area. Right. The, the, the Great Gatsby, though, though uh, on two sides of it at the beginning before he becomes the Great Gatsby and after when he's got the big mansion. You work for Northwell Health, uh, the largest healthcare employer in New York State, nearly 70,000 employees. The CEO of the system is an Irish immigrant, Michael Dowling. He's written about his immigrant experience. Have you ever spoken with him about about these issues? Oh, my goodness. You, it's funny because I had the opportunity to speak with Michael Dowling in May. And this was after receiving an award. Um, both of us received an award for our community partnership with the organization Child Center of New York, which is the organization I've been working with that focuses on um, serving underserved low income populations, but heavily immigrant populations. With Michael Dowling, he was able to share because of this shared interest. He shared his story and it was so powerful to see his ability to rise up with the help of others and and be able to move into where he's at today. I think that has been, I would say, the impetus for him to be so supportive of the work that we do within helping families connect to resources to be able to not only help people medically, but help the whole person. The administration last week finalized its public charge rule. There have been other moves made to either curb immigration through uh, paring back availability of visas or even separate families at the southern border. You're a pediatrician. Yes or no. Has this administration's immigration rules made it harder for doctors like you to help your patients? I would say that the rules that have been implemented are devastating to families. I would say that what happens at this point is that 
we have communities that are not only stressed, which we know are related to health and how well they can come to um, better health outcomes. But what I've seen, and I think many have seen, is a pullback of people utilizing important important institutions such as healthcare facilities, such as even schools, such as early childhood education centers. It's not just about government benefits, but people are living in fear. Last question. You're speaking to an audience that includes a number of folks who work on Capitol Hill in healthcare, in areas that are related to immigration. What would you tell them about what needs to be changed? What is the policy that you would recommend for better health of the patients and populations you work with? You're keeping me at one, but <laughs> so I'll try to be succinct. But I think the biggest thing right now is that the what I termed as social needs is actually something called social determinants of health, meaning that social issues determine health more than just medical issues. Right now, as physicians, we are only paid for or only... Um, compensated for providing medical care, even though we know that that accounts for only 20% of health. What I would advocate for first and foremost is to be able to incentivize for our healthcare facilities to actually be able to be compensated for making sure that we're screening patients for housing, employment, um, benefits, all of those things and being able to connect them to resources. The second thing that I would also do is I would pull back the public charge rule. I would actually, the, the rule was actually created at a time and, an act, and that was very antiquated and actually has gone through a number of changes. And what I would say is right now, we are a land of opportunity. We are a land that Almost all of us have had histories where we've needed support for a temporary period in order to move further. I just share with you my personal story that my mother, as a green card recipient, was able to bring together, bring over her sister. What did her sister do? Her sister actually came over and worked part time, but cared for me while my mom could, could work a second job. What did that what did she do? She was able to help bring over her her brother and sister and now they're health professionals working in this economy, paying taxes. 60 percent, 60 percent of immigrants who receive public benefits also work. So I think there's an important need to change the narrative around this for American citizens. 40% of those that receive public benefits also work. Why is that important? What I see day to day are people who want to take care of their children. Blank period. They want to see their children succeed. They will work and they will use these public benefits in order to make sure that that income they have can pay for transportation, can pay for childcare, so they can continue to work insane hours, but continue to work. Well, Dr. Omolara Uomedimo, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with Pulse Check. No, thank you so much. Any way that I can get out the word to make sure people are aware of the devastating effects of this is always appreciated. So thank you. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Dr. Omolara Uomedimo and Ed Walls at Springboard for setting up that conversation and Ted Hessen at Politico for making time too. 
Derek Clements was our producer on the ground in New York. And Jenny Ament is the wizard here in D.C. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast players. Just search for Politico Pulse Check. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com by email if you have thoughts or suggestions about the show. And you can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player very soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.